Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I'm joined today by Christine Kim and Charles Yu from Galaxy Digital Research. Hey, Christine. Hello. Hi, Alex. Hey, Chuck. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you, Alex? I'm great. And this week, we are also joined by two special guests, Bimnet Abibi, one of Galaxy Digital's top traders, and Amanda Fabiano, head of Bitcoin mining at Galaxy Digital. This week, we're going to talk about Bitcoin mining. New York State's uh, assembly, the lower house of its legislature, has passed a bill imposing a moratorium on new or expanded Bitcoin mining operations. We're going to talk about Fidelity Investments, 401k retirement business, offering Bitcoin exposure to planned participants of the 23,000 employers that use Fidelity for their 401ks. And we're going to talk about optimism, rolling out a new token that's the leading optimistic roll-up L2 on Ethereum. But first, let's start with BIMnet. Give us an overview of what you're seeing in the market today. Got it. Thanks for having me on, Thorne. Um, this market has been incredibly choppy. Uh, we've seen a, a pretty significant correction in, in risk markets, particularly in U.S. equities. The S&P, Russell 2000, and the NASDAQ are all pretty much sitting uh, close to trend lows or year-to-date lows. Um, and that's had a, a pretty significant impact on, on crypto as well. Uh, you know, We've seen ETH sell off to 2800 and Bitcoin dip uh, as low as, as, as 38000 um, And so it's been a pretty meaningful week in, in this market. This, this move lower has largely been driven by um, a, a couple of, of, of different things. One, uh, concerns around China's sort of zero tolerance policy with respect to, to COVID, you know, shutting down Beijing and, and China and sort of, you know, those implications on growth sort of continue. Number two would be uh, continued sort of digestion of the market of, of what the Fed is about to do. Again, they're about to raise rates materially. They're also going to uh, be, you know, selling securities into into the open market by, by, by quantitative tightening. Um, and in addition to that, um, you've also had um, you know, some, some increased tensions with respect to, to Russia and Ukraine. So I'd say, you know, those three factors have, have largely led to uh, a decline in, in risk appetite. Um, in addition, you know, you have a lot of folks that are sort of forecasting a, a recession uh, for the U.S. economy as soon as, you know, sort of Q4 of this year or, you know, Q1 of, of, of next year. So that, that sort of logic has sort of seeped its way in, in, into the market. And, and I think that's really um, impacted risk sentiment in, in, in a pretty meaningful way. That's a great overview. Really appreciate it, Bim. Uh, I don't know, do we foresee any kinds of changes in monetary policy or, or other policy in the, on the nearest term that's different from last week? Or are people still feeling the same way about the Fed's hawkishness? Um, I, I think, you know, folks are, are waiting for uh, what the Fed is going to say during, during May FOMC. Uh, but broadly speaking, you know, I think you're at the point in the market where a lot of unknowns have sort of resolved themselves. One, you know, I, I think it's it's pretty clear what, what the Fed is going to do. They, they've telegraphed it over the past, you know, three to four weeks with, you know, all the different Fed speakers that, that have come around. Um, and so that's pretty clear. I, I think sort of the Russia-Ukraine stuff, people, you know, are not going to get surprised by, you know, sort of any actions that, that are forthcoming. We've already gone through a large portion of earnings season in, in U.S. equities. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of general unknowns in the market have sort of been resolved. Um, so if I had to guess, you know, I think you know, you're probably going to see sort of consolidation in, in the absence of any material catalyst. 
Awesome. I really appreciate it, Bim. Thanks for coming and uh, giving us those views as always. Um, we'll talk to you next week and, uh, you know, stay safe out there. All right. So major news in Bitcoin mining, uh, a few items we'd love to cover. We, we are lucky to be joined by Amanda Fabiano, an expert in Bitcoin mining, uh, the head of Galaxy Digital's Bitcoin mining business. Um, I'll just kick it off. And then Amanda, I'd love if you could fill in the details. The New York State Assembly, which is the lower house of New York State Legislature, has passed uh, by a pretty big majority, uh, a moratorium on new or I guess expanded Bitcoin mining operations that aren't 100% uh, fueled by sustainable energy. Um, can you can you explain what's happened and and then and then we'll follow up on on that? Yeah, sure, Alex and team. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so, a, a really layman's way of thinking about this bill is that it's meant for two years unless a company uses 100% renewable energy, they cannot expand or renew their permits if they exist in New York and new entrants can't come online. So the bill basically is stalling all of the growth in New York for Bitcoin mining and innovation. Now people are saying like, this is a crypto ban, but Bitcoin is the one using proof of work and they're they're really targeting the proof of work mentality. Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, 100% sustainable energy, I'm, I'm really not aware of any industry that has a, a mix that looks like that. Um, it does seem very Bitcoin targeted. Yep. And yes, outside, I guess, of maybe Monero and and uh, and Zcash and a couple altcoin forks, Bitcoin is the only proof of work coin um, other than Ethereum, which, of course, is switching to proof of stake. Ethereum has gotten away with a lot because they keep saying they're going to switch to proof of stake, <laughs> but we haven't gotten there yet. Right. So I think it's kind of been a genius like marketing play of Ethereum to say, like, oh, we're going to switch. Like, don't worry. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Whereas Bitcoin. You can look at any point in time and see the energy usage. Good point. The, the bill passed the assembly and now it needs to pass in the Senate. And so there's still time for the bill to get re, like to not be passed. I think, you know, New Yorkers and Bitcoiners should really like I encourage them to call their senators, right, to get on the phone and really be like in, in, like that activism that we have in us as Bitcoiners. Right. Like really push forward for that, um, because. You know, as much as we can say like Bitcoin doesn't care, which it doesn't, right? Like Bitcoin network will continue to be resilient, just like it was when China banned it. New York will be left behind. And there's a lot of really great people working in New York. So New York's going to lose to other states. They're also going to lose potentially to other progressive nations. And it's really setting a bad precedent for any other state to follow. And also in New York, which had an enormous manufacturing base, you know, it's part of that sort of rust belt. A lot of these plants and and facilities where Bitcoin mining is occurring there were actually uh, put into communities that were devastated by the decline in manufacturing in the United States. Um, and so this has created a lot of jobs there. And, and, it, and also, New York has a lot of hydroelectric power. So a lot of this energy is already sustainable. Yeah, I think it definitely weakens New York's economy um, by forcing businesses to take jobs elsewhere. And there are some really prominent players in New York in the in the mining um, ecosystem. According to like a, a recent study that is not published yet, about 3% of the Bitcoin network in the U.S. is based in New York. So, you know, when you think about creating a mining business, you don't have like a one month plan. You have like a 6, 12, 18 month plan because it costs a lot of money. And this is physical infrastructure and building. So it really is stunting all of the growth. I think it's it's really difficult sometimes to think about how the physical world meets the digital world with Bitcoin mining until you see a Bitcoin mining data center and you're like, oh, my God, like how much money has gone into this? How much more do you need to grow to your max capacity? And we're really stunting all of that in New York, which is 
I think unfortunate. And, and you know, it's traditionally been terrible, right? Like with the BIS license, they've made it an, a not very innovative place for this industry to come and join. So this seems like just another really bad step in the ne- in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's it's always been hard to be a crypto or Bitcoin startup in New York, um, and and this definitely adds uh, fuel to that fire. I, I guess I'll say. So, so we know where we are in the process that we've got the lower house bill passed, the Senate bill. Do we know when that Senate bill is going to come up for a vote? I think it's looking like next week. Okay. So there's still some time uh, since this podcast comes out on Friday morning and we're recording on Wednesday afternoon. So uh, to get the word out there, um, particularly as Amanda said, if you're a New Yorker um, where this should, you know, this has an impact on your economy and, and jobs in your state. Um, okay. So then when we, I just want to throw this out there because sort of adjacent to this, I think yesterday, the Bitcoin Mining Council, which represents, I think, about 50% of the Bitcoin hash rate, they released their uh, report, which I think comes out quarterly. And there's a ton of great stuff in this report. This is uh, a a large number of miners, almost all or maybe all of the publicly traded miners in the United States um, and many others um, in across, you know, I think they said five continents voluntarily reporting information um, on their energy usage and their hash rate and and other parts of their operations. Um, And so it's a great, great data source for um, an industry that's been, it's, it's been somewhat opaque until recent years, partly because of how globally distributed it is and how hard it is to coordinate. And I should say the total, totally permissionless nature of proof of work mining in Bitcoin, anyone can just turn on a miner and participate. So really hard to corral, but I think this has now become by far the leading data source in the state of the Bitcoin mining network. And just before I ask for Amanda's comments, I just wanted to point out some data points that really stood out. First, um, Bitcoin mining uses 0.16% of global energy and is only responsible for 0.08%, that's eight BIPs of global carbon emissions. And I think the biggest takeaway from this is this next point, which is that the Bitcoin mining hash rate year over year is up 23%. Followers of this podcast have probably seen that chart in general. It's a, it's one of the most important charts in the cryptocurrency ecosystem, Bitcoin's mining hash rate. But even though it was up 23% year over year, energy usage is down 25% year over year due to an increase, uh, an increase in uh, mining chip efficiency. Amanda, what are your thoughts on this? Or, you know, does this help? I mean, in, in terms of fighting things like what's happening in New York? I think it's definitely helped. Before, we really didn't have data sources to go to that collated a lot of different companies, you know, initiatives. In 44 mining companies electively choose to provide this information, and it accounts for 50% of the global hash rate. And so that's a starting point, right? I think that Mining being as decentralized as it, as it is, it made it like an easy target just to focus on its energy usage before it wasn't really put in context correctly. Just Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. Well, what does that mean? Because it actually doesn't. So that point zero point one six number of the world's total energy production is really interesting when you think about it. Because when you step back and you're like, why are we focusing on marginalizing one industry and one network? You kind of have to think about it in terms of, you know, other industries and other networks. And when you think about it from that small amount of, you know, a percentage, you start to not be as angry with Bitcoin using energy anymore. Um, I think, you know, also innovation in Bitcoin mining has also helped with the reduction in energy usage. So like you said, Alex, um, the energy usage is lower and that's because, you know, the ASIC machines are becoming more and more efficient. The, la- the lifespan of the ASIC machines are becoming more efficient. And also 
miners are getting smarter on operations using different types of immersion cooling and thinking about how to extend the lifespan of, of that actual machine. So we're seeing a lot of innovation happen within Bitcoin mining to, to really bring it to like that next step. Yeah, even on the e-waste question, as it's called, that's the you ever see those photos of giant piles of monitors, old computer monitors and, you know, all our old cell phones. People talked about how quickly older Bitcoin mining machines were becoming obsoleted by newer generation, more efficient machines. But really, we've seen older machines hold their value for a lot longer and be valuable. The Antminer S9, which came out now, I think, six years ago, if I'm correct is still being used. And, and actually, it's being used uh, by the city of Fort Worth, Texas. They're, they're mining with Antminer S9s in City Hall. That just came out this week. It really draws a contrast with New York. It, it definitely draws a contrast with New York. I think that, you know, the machines have this incredible, like, secondary market lifespan. So you can buy machines. There's lots of people that are mining, for example, in their house, right, where older machines are, are much more advantageous and also more affordable. Also, if you have a lower cost of energy, your machine cost or the type of output that your machine has, you can still be very competitive with an older machine. So it's really an interesting dynamic of like, how do you use that setup in a situation that works the best for you and is economical? And people are extremely creative with that. Um, so it's it's been really cool to see some, you know, I, I personally love like the home miner uh, usage of, of the older machines. I think it's really cool that people have figured out ways to, you know, heat their homes or, you know, Steve with his um, black boxes, right? Give people access to, you know, this this Bitcoin on a regular stream in their own home. So, you know, I think the robust secondary market of ASIC machines provides a real solution beyond just these large scale miners that I love. Um, Texas is, a, is the complete opposite approach of how New York is handling Bitcoin. So, Obviously, a lot of people are flocking to Texas because of their low cost of energy and how the ERCOT grid works and access to different programs. And there's been a ton of people flocking there. So instead of saying like, oh, like New York, like we're just going to ban this because we don't understand it. What Texas did was set up a task force to assess the incoming large energy demands that it's getting from you know Bitcoin mining. And I would argue that's a much better approach than the route New York is taking. Yeah, it's definitely a very different approach. It's it's I think it's much more accepting of innovation and, and jobs. And we, we don't have time today to go into depth on on why it's also can be very beneficial for an energy grid to have a buyer of last resort like Bitcoin miners um, to help with load balancing. But we'll cover that again uh, a different day. Um, OK, so Amanda, really appreciate you talking to us about mining. I'd love if you could stick around for a few minutes because we're going to talk about our mutual alma mater, Fidelity Investments, uh, where both of us worked for a long time. They've announced uh, that they will begin offering investors the option to put Bitcoin into their 401k plans, um, which makes it the first large provider to offer crypto or Bitcoin um, in uh, as a retirement savings option. It's notable because Fidelity is the largest 401k provider plan administrator in the in the uh, retirement lingo in the United States, providing 401k retirement plans to over 23,000 employers. Um, Fidelity has $11.3 trillion under administration, uh, meaning not all of those assets are discretionary invested by Fidelity, um, but they are sort of administered by Fidelity. And that includes the assets in these plans, making it the largest. And so um, you know, I, I'll just kick it off here. This is huge news for uh, Fidelity. It's huge news for the retirement industry. And I think it's big news for Bitcoin as well. 
Fidelity Digital Assets, of course, is the Bitcoin custody business uh, and trading business that Fidelity operates. And and honestly, they, they've done a great job and they've done an am- amazing job helping to educate the market, but they haven't yet, Fidelity Digital Assets, seen a real breakout in the crypto world. Um, and that's for a number of reasons, but I think this move is so iconic for Fidelity because this is actually how Fidelity has always distributed its products when they create new products. Take the mutual fund, which was really pioneered by Fidelity. The creation of the brokerage business, which is large, I think the last time I knew the number, it was like 30 million accounts. You got 23,000 employers that do their 401ks through Fidelity Retirement uh, Services. Um, these were always thought, these are distribution arms for Fidelity's core business, you know, historically, which was um, asset management, right? And these mutual funds. And it makes a lot of sense, I think, for Fidelity Digital Assets to be the back office provider for Bitcoin products um, that they push down through these, through their massive distribution arms. You know, and it also, I don't know, Amanda, before I go on, do you have any thoughts on this as a Fidelity alum? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great product for people. Fidelity was really early on in the space. They took their time, right, to learn it, to research it, to think about products, market fit, right? Um, and I think that this is this is really one that it's where like the Bitcoin world and their traditional world really intersect in a way that makes sense. So I think it's really bullish. Um, I I think that everyone should maybe take some of their dirty fiat and turn it into Bitcoin in their 401k. I think the world would be a much better place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense too, right? Because Bitcoin, most view as a very long-term investment. It has sound money properties, uh, which make it really ideal for a sort of a long-term view as opposed to something very short-term. It's It's been volatile in the short term, but something like that feels really suited and, and fitting for a long-term investment plan like a retirement plan. I will point out another fascinating uh, part of this story is that the Department of Labor last month on March 10th, um, which regulates uh, 401k uh, plans and plan administrators, they put out uh, a note, um, guidance, I'm I'm not sure if it is officially guidance, but a note specifically about 401k plan providers um, offering investment in cryptocurrencies, as they said. And they outlined a whole bunch of risks that it could have. They listed speculative and volatile investment, um, a challenge for plan participants to make informed decisions, custodial and record keeping concerns, valuation concerns, and an evolving regulatory environment. But they even finished with this statement. They said, based on these and other concerns, the DOL expects to conduct an investigative program aimed at plans that offer participant investments in cryptocurrencies and related products and to take appropriate action to protect the interests of plan participants and beneficiaries with respect to these investments. Now, that note came out just last month, and this month, Fidelity has now announced their offering. You have to assume that the DOL and Fidelity um, have had conversations about this, and for Fidelity to go forward, um, given this guidance, I think is is very, very strong indication that they believe that they can help any participant plans that end up accepting and offering this through Fidelity with those apparently forthcoming investigations. I mean, DOL is basically saying, if you do this, we're going to investigate you. It seems like Fidelity will probably be offering its clients, again, its clients in this case um, are the employers, right? The plan sponsors of these 401k plans will help them probably deal or or provide information or, 
or whatever um, to help them with any ensuing regulatory stuff. Just very interesting. And, and, and then I think the last really important point here is, okay, so what are people going to be buying? Let, r- real quick, Christine, you want to hop in here before I dive into this part of it? Yeah, I wanted to ask, I mean, given your guys' understanding of probably all the moving pieces within Fidelity that was required to make this 401k possible, how likely is it that we're also going to see in the near-term future other crypto assets supported by Fidelity and and their uh, products? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the great thing about Fidelity is how big it is. It has this massive distribution that can really make a difference, right, in the, in the Bitcoin landscape and, and broader crypto ecosystem. Um, I think, you know, that's also like most of us, our strengths are sometimes our downfall, right? Like there's a lot of a lot of red tape that goes along with a large com- large financial company, right, to make those things happen. I think a signal to watch for is when Fidelity launches ETH custody, that maybe there will be like, you know, more support internally in order for it to get traction on the 401k side. So I would focus, you know, and and think about the custody business and what they're they're working on. And then I imagine that that rollout will continue to exist um, as, as they grow their different coins that they're custodying. Yeah, Fidelity today custodies and trades only Bitcoin. And so this offering, I assume as it stands, can only um, offer Bitcoin. But I totally agree. And that's where I was headed to um, was that our... It appears that when you are a um, employee, right, you are a plan participant in a 401k through this offering, that what you'll be buying is essentially shares in an omnibus spot account, Bitcoin spot account held at Fidelity Digital Assets. And so it doesn't look like they're going to do some kind of fund thing where you're buying shares in a fund. It looks like Fidelity Digital Assets, if you are an employer, and you decide to add this offering to your employee's 401k, then that employer will get an omnibus account. That plan will have an omnibus spot account at Fidelity Digital Assets. Um, And I don't know how they'll do the record keeping or or sub-accounting or whatever to actually assign out the ownership of the Bitcoin in that omnibus spot account back to the employee contributors. I don't know how that will happen. Um, but what is interesting is that this will create a sustained and, and recurring perpetual spot bid for Bitcoin, um, much the same way when our contributions go in, you know, a lot of people are buying, you know, index funds and stuff, and it's very buoyant for the broader equity markets, right? And, and fixed income markets, I guess, depending on what you're investing in, in your 401k. So this has the potential to be very um, supportive for Bitcoin price over time. And then, yes, of course, Christine, to your point, any other crypto assets that um, Fidelity is able to put into this offering. So I I think it's huge news. I mean, as a longtime Fidelity employee, I worked there for 11 and a half years until I joined Galaxy. Very happy to see this um, and, and, you know, hope that we'll get something like this in our plan at some point, too, so we can uh, start stacking sats in our long term 401ks. One more thing to add to that, Alex, I just think that it's incredible that Fidelity has been educating, you know, the, the people that they have, like they have 50,000 people, right, globally, and they've been educating them on Bitcoin for a while, and they roll out a product like this, and that's also must be like really exciting for the people that are like, you know, have been attending these events for a long time, there's now an offering that they can participate in. So, you know, as a former uh, person who created, oh, not who created, but who worked on the Bits and Blocks Club, I would have a lot of interactions with people that really wanted access to Bitcoin um, through some way at Fidelity. And I think it's a great option for them. So kudos to Abby and team, like really looking forward to her speech at Consensus. Yeah, kudos to Fidelity for this. It's the first sort of retail facing offering 
they've come out with Bitcoin and they've been working on it hard since about 2015. So um, really, really proud of them and great to hear this. Um, it's been a long time coming. All right, let's go to our third big story. We've got Charles Yu, a CFA, he sometimes reminds me, uh, on the line here to talk about optimism. And before I get into that, Amanda, thank you for joining us. I know you have to run. Um, really appreciate you being here. So Chuck, optimism, which is, I guess, the most prominent optimistic roll-up layer two network connected to the Ethereum ecosystem, um, is launching a token. Is this the first... Uh, is it the first time a, a rollup has launched a token um, or just the most uh, important to date? No. Um, actually, we have two other uh, optimistic rollups, um, Metis and, and Boba, that actually launched tokens prior to this. They actually received like a lot more uh, activity on their networks than Optimism currently has. Um, with that being said, you know some of the activity has fallen off and, and Optimism has, has stayed at like pretty consistent levels throughout. But um, yeah, no, this is definitely a very interesting and uh, meaningful launch. You know, as background, Optimism is an optimistic rollup, formerly known as Plasma, um, which was really championed by Vitalik and, and by extension, you know, the rest of the ETH community. Um, and it branded itself as Optimistic Ethereum um, because it is the most aligned with ETH in terms of politics and EVM equivalents. Um, and frankly, because of this equivalence angle, like I thought that Optimism would be the last to, to launch a token. But I don't know, a couple things to, to note from its launch. Um, first, the OP token um, will not be used as a gas token. It's going to continue to use ETH. There have been a lot of criticisms with L2s with their own gas tokens um, as being like parasitic to ETH. Um, so those points aren't necessarily relevant with this launch. But what the token is really used for is an interesting angle, I guess, along like airdrop tokenomics and governance. Um, and the two kind of go hand in hand here. So with governance, Optimism's introducing uh, two governing bodies. One is the token house, where token holders will be able to govern, or they'll be able to vote on protocol upgrades and project incentives um, as part of like the governance fund. And this is kind of the more familiar use of governance where Voting power is based on the value of one stake tokens. The second governing body is called the Citizens House, which is going to facilitate and govern um, distribution of public goods funding. And these are the ones that are generated uh, by sequencers on the network. So retroactive public goods is a way to reward the past actions of developers and project teams. And the idea is that it's actually going to more closely align or reward project teams based on the actual value of their contributions rather than funding them for, for project visions and, and all the promises that they lay out in their roadmap. And this governing body, the Citizens House, is different from the previous model because it grants um, each citizen or individual wallet um, like more equal voting power. And citizenship, so to speak, will be based on like one's positive contributions to the network. Um, and it's going to be represented through, through a non-transferable NFT. Um, so the airdrop was kind of designed to, to reward positive actions like DAO voters and, and Gitcoin donors. And this initial airdrop is going to represent 5% of the total token supply, which is relatively high. But what's interesting is that they're going to have multiple rounds of airdrops. So they allocated 14% of the total token supply for airdrops. And it kind of provides incentives for, for users not just to farm and dump their tokens, but encourages you know airdrop farmers to, to contribute to the network in a 
in a real positive some manner. With all that being said, um, what do you guys think about the actual implications of the, the airdrop? What does this mean for Optimism, for their L2s, for ETH? It seems like the, the the very small number of people are actually eligible for the airdrop because of when the date that they set on the cutoff. Is that right? It's like June 23rd, 2021. And you had to have you interacted with it previous to that. Do we have any idea of how many people are actually going to get this thing? Yeah, it's actually going to 240,000 unique um, addresses. And most of them are for initially bridging over to Optimism and for being repeat users of it. So that's not too small. That's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. What do you think about like optimistic versus zero knowledge rollups in the scheme of things? I mean, I know, I think in the past you've been more constructive on ZKRs than optimistic rollups. Does this change that? I wouldn't say so. To be honest, like I kind of view, like people kind of talk about optimistic rollups as being like a temporary stepstone for, you know, ZK rollups, like, like optimistic rollups could walk. So, so ZK could run. But to be honest, it's, I still feel like ZK is kind of a far way out. Um, and this is almost more like a defensive play by, by optimism. Um, kind of seeing how, you know, last summer, the big narrative was, you know, this is going to be L2 summer and, you know, L2s launched kind of, we saw how that really like played out with, with all L1s like taking the lion's share of activity and L2 is just being slower to catch on. Even with like all the innovations that they've kind of put in like over recent months, call data compression, like really lowering like the transaction fees, it hasn't really driven like much activity to to these networks. And so I kind of view this token as kind of like a defensive measure to to actually like incentivize usage of of these rollups. Um because yeah, political alignment with with Ethereum just isn't going to cut it seemingly. Yeah. And I also feel like with the incentives that are now going to be available on Optimism, it's going to um, pressure other L2s to roll out their own tokens. Um, looking at Arbitrum definitely as another key player next um, for just this, this competition of trying to incentivize more users to use their their platforms and their L2s. Um, what do you think, Chuck, about like the timing of this announcement, especially given that you know rumors had always been around floating when token is a constant question for L2s. And now that optimism kind of is is leading the charge on this one, what do you think about the timing and like why why now? I would say that, you know, it really feels like L2 tokens, uh you know, airdrops in general, like everything's kind of been pretty experimental in terms of, uh, you know, the relative success in, in attracting talent and, and, and keeping or maintaining like users on the network. Um, so we kind of saw like a lot of these like um, one and done airdrops, like the, like Uniswap, for example, like when they launched their, their token, you know, it was a different environment back then because there wasn't too much like other competition or incentives to, to, or like other projects out there to, to switch to. So a lot of the users like kept on to those tokens, but we've seen over time as we, you know, move past like airdrop season last year, there's no real incentives for, for people to, to, to keep these tokens. What I think this means for, for ETH, for optimism, um, is really, you know, showcasing of like, like what the network actually is. And, and I would actually 
argue that like it might be detrimental to them um depending on whether or not like arbitrum like copies like the same like like token structure of the airdrop for example you know say optimism also launches like a, a developer fund or an ecosystem fund which some of these uh you know governing bodies are actually like deciding where the funds actually go um it'd be real easy for for arbitrum for example to to launch a larger fund um with even like better incentives so i feel like first mover advantage is actually a detriment to to a lot of like crypto in general because of uh the replicability of of some of the uh token designs that's a fascinating point it might be better to be second than first in this game um, especially when it comes to just different technologies um, at play as well. Um, this is great, Chuck. Thank you so much. As always, let's get into our quick hits. Let's be quick, all right? I'm looking at myself mostly in the mirror on this one about being quick. All right, first, the Central African Republic. It is the second nation in the world to formally adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. This is, uh, you know, I, I think medium news at best in the scheme of things, a very small country, but in a totally different geography. I've already broken my own rule um, about being quick, but I will point out this is now legal, legal tender alongside the CFA Frank. Um, read Alex Gladstein's piece about the CFA structure. It is incredible how African nations um, have been under the yoke of the French uh, uh, monetary policy for so long, despite um, being liberated from you know French colonization for so long. Um, so very interesting step given that given that um, backstory. All right, next, OpenSea acquires Uncut Gems, a leading NFT marketplace aggregator. Who's got a quick hit on this one? I do. My quick hit, hit <laughs> is RIP to Uncut. Uh, the acquisition from OpenSea doesn't look like it's going to bode well for the value proposition of that dashboard. All right. Um, Board Apes Yacht Club is investigating a phishing attack after a hacker commandeered their Instagram account, also hacked their Discord, um, and posted a giveaway scam. Something like $2.5 million in apes and other NFTs were stolen by people that fell for this. Stop clicking on red links, on random links. There's, <laughs> I mean, I've said this before. It's not that sophisticated of an attack. I know. <laughs> Yeah, phishing, I guess, can be hard to spot. I agree with that. I mean, Discord, I feel like it's almost like known for for like spamming bots and, and those trying to like steal your information. So, yeah. You know. uh, Instagram, though, when it comes to cybersecurity, uh, does seem like it might be a target-rich environment. Um, I think the Twitter, crypto and Bitcoin Twitter folks have learned a long time ago not to click on giveaway scams, but uh, maybe uh, in the Instagram community is just learning. Um, still very sorry to see that as always. Um, but again, keep your keys safe. Don't send keys and private keys and recovery phrases to anyone. All right. No matter whether they say nothing in life is free. All right. You're not going to, I'm not going to send you one Bitcoin and you're going to send me two back. That's just crazy. That's, that doesn't happen. Okay. So just don't do that people. <laughs> and lastly, um, we'll have a lot more on this in the coming weeks, but there's a fascinating debate brewing in the Bitcoin community and particularly in the Bitcoin developer community over a proposed software called Op Check Template Verify. This is BIP, BIP Bitcoin Improvement Proposal 119, um, written and proposed by Bitcoin uh, developer Jeremy Rubin. Um, CTV would offer interesting uh, feature enhancements primarily for encumbering 
um, uh, Bitcoins after you send them. Um, so, or I guess as you send them and uh, allowing you to do much more interesting and complex uh, forms of custody, including covenants and vaults. Um, and also um, doing a really interesting thing called congestion control. The, the, uh, the, the controversy is less about what the upgrade is and more about how it's been proposed um, and promoted. There's a big debate as Jeremy Rubin has uh, promoted sort of a, um, an accelerated time frame for activation. We'll get into that more over the coming weeks, but it's been very interesting to watch. Um, it's all over Twitter and the Bitcoin developer mailing list, which of course are public and open. So if you're interested, check those out. Um, that is all we have for today. Thank you to Christine and Chuck for joining us. Thank you also to Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading and Amanda Fabiano, the head of Bitcoin mining at Galaxy Digital. I'm Alex Thorne, your host, and we will see you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on our research reports and what we are doing and working on at Galaxy Digital Research, visit us at www.galaxydigital.io research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. Those links will be in the show notes. Again, thanks everyone for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Galaxy Brains.